0: One of the things that I really enjoy doing is hiking. Being somewhere new, getting out into the great outdoors, just enjoying the opportunity to see something of nature, some of the things God has made, and enjoying the physical activity that goes along with it. But one of the things I've come to realize in these little adventures is that once you start on the wrong path, you really can't get back on the right path. And one of the things that is the most difficult in all of that is sometimes you're not even aware that you're on the wrong path until you don't end up where you intended to go. Now, I use that analogy because, to me, it's very similar to where the church is today. Somehow, we're on the wrong path. And what is really sad is many individuals don't even think we're on the wrong path because we have glowing reports of what we would call Christian success. But some individuals who recognize that we've been on the wrong path for the last 20 or even 30 years have been struggling with how is it we get back on the right path. And what they're finding is that probably the only way to do so is to make a clean break, get back to the basics. Now, I say that and why it has such significance and relevance. When the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Colossae, he said, as you have received Jesus Christ, so walk in him. In other words, how you begin your Christian walk is the method by which you continue your Christian walk. Therefore, if you begin your Christian walk on the wrong path, you continue to do the things that are not correct and never get on the right path number of years ago, there was an alliance of confessing evangelicals who said the following. Whenever in the church, biblical authority has been displaced, the gospel has been distorted, or faith has been perverted, it has always been for one reason. Our interests have displaced God's. And we are doing his work in our way. The loss of God's centrality in the life of today's church is common and lamentable. It is this loss that allows us to transform worship into entertainment. Gospel preaching into marketing. Believing into techniques, being good into feeling good about ourselves, and faithfulness into being successful. As a result, God, Christ, and the Bible have come to mean far too little to us. When you start out on the wrong path, it's hard to get back on the right track. And what is even more disturbing is when you're on the wrong path and you don't even realize that you are. We are engaged in a form of Christianity in America that can't trace its roots back to the reformers can't trace its roots back to the apostles, and certainly can't trace its roots back to biblical teachings. In the book of Acts, the apostle Paul was concerned about the well-being of the church and individuals with whom he had ministered for many years. And in Acts chapter 20, we have the apostle Paul giving instruction to the elders of Ephesus and warning them about the inevitable fact that individuals will end up on the wrong path, that savage wolves will come in and will not spare the flock. And even from among Christian leaders, individuals will arise and draw disciples after themselves. Paul said that because he was concerned about the well-being of God's people. In his ministry, Paul had the occasion to address a man in Philippi who was a jailer. And this individual saw distinctive things and heard things from Paul and Silas while they were in prison. And when God was pleased To break down the walls of the dungeon, that jailer sought to put himself to death. And Paul said, don't do it. We're all still here. And you remember that the jailer came into the dungeon and spoke to Paul and Silas and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? A simple question. And yet in our day, we're not sure how we ought to answer it well, let me take you down the Roman's road. Let me teach you how to pray the sinner's prayer. Uh, You just need to be baptized by water because of baptismal regeneration. Well, let's have a rally and you can walk an aisle and make a decision for Christ. None of those methods were were ever used by Paul or any of the other apostles in presenting the gospel. And so we look at what Paul says in Acts chapter 20. And here as he gives his farewell address and speaks about the things that are the most important to him. Concern for the well-being of God's people. You'll notice he says in verses. 19 and 20, he was serving the Lord with all humility and tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews and how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly from house to house and solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now I am bound in spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself in order that I may finish my course and the ministry which I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Paul would say that the concentration of his ministry that he had been given was to declare the gospel of the grace of God. Now, we looked a little bit last week, at uh, last time we studied, at the derivations or departures that have been made from this glorious ministry that was given to the Apostle Paul. But I think today we need to make sure we understand just the beauty of what Paul's ministry was like. Paul's ministry would not be characterized by flamboyant displays of uh, his oratory skill or ways of manipulating individuals into... Uh, making a response. And yet on the other hand, we recognize that Paul had a heartfelt desire for individuals to embrace Christ and to come to faith in him. We can read in Corinthians how he would state that he would plead with individuals that they might be reconciled with God. We can look at the reality of Paul's ministry in the book of Acts, and we find that when his audience was very familiar with biblical truth, what would he do? He would spend time teaching them from the scriptures how Jesus was the fulfillment of what had been proclaimed in the Old Testament. And when he spoke to individuals who didn't have that frame of reference, he would minister to them in a way that would recognize the fact that God had made himself known in creation all around, and we need to have a correct view of God, that he is not one that is dependent upon us as if he needs anything from us, but in him we live and move and have our being. And after laying the right understanding of who God is, he said that God in days gone by overlooked the sinful ways of men and their ignorance, but in these last days he is commanding men everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day in which he's going to judge the world in righteousness. Isn't that amazing that we do not usually hear individuals presenting the gospel talking about the fact that judgment is coming? Instead, the emphasis we want to make today is that God really loves all of us. And he really can't get along without us, either directly stated or implied. And he certainly won't do anything unless we give him permission to do so. That every time someone gets down on their knees and says, Lord, I'm asking you to save whatever your loved one is, what you're really doing is saying, God, I want you to impose your will on them. And I want you to do something for them that they can't do for themselves. Paul said that his ministry, given to him as a direct commission from God, was to solemnly testify of the gospel of the grace of God. Now we know that this word gospel means it is good news. It is news that is invigorating, refreshing, It is the news that focuses on what God has done for unworthy sinners. If you go with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul makes it very clear there of what is essential when it comes to preaching the gospel of the grace of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul said, In verse 3, I delivered to you as of first importance what I had received. And so the first important thing for us to understand is you and I today, just like Paul in his day, have a stewardship. It is not for you or for me any more than it was for Paul to try to come up with what the gospel message ought to be like and how to present it. What I thought was most important, said Paul, is what I told you at the get-go. Now, it doesn't mean that he said it just exactly as it's recorded here in 1 Corinthians, but the reality is when Paul had the occasion to speak with them in fulfillment of his divine calling, to solemnly testify of the gospel, of the good news, of the grace of God, he said, what I delivered to you is what I was given. Because my commission is not to generate or come up with something on my own, but to faithfully declare what God has told me to say. And what is it that constituted this message? He says, that Christ died for our sins, According to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared. Now, the way this statement by Paul is structured, what you find is Paul is saying there are two essential facts that make up the gospel message. And those two essential facts have to do with the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That Christ died and that Christ arose. And both of these two essential facts were not an afterthought on the part of God. For Paul said that Christ died, how? Just like the Bible said he would die, according to the scriptures. And Christ arose, how? Just like the Bible said, it was according to the scriptures. Both the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is the essence of the gospel message, is something that was disclosed in the Old Testament as well as being explained in the New. It is the reality that man is not acceptable to God on his or her own. If I could make myself acceptable to God, said the Apostle Paul when he wrote to the Galatians, then Christ died in vain. There is no need for the death of Christ if there is anything I could desire to do or could do to make myself commendable to God. The reality of Jesus Christ and his death substitutionary in the place of others was the fact that no human being, regardless of their intentions, no matter how sincerely they may believe it, can commend themselves to God by their own works or their own merit. There was no need for the incarnation. There was certainly no need for the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. If any one of us is able to make ourselves acceptable to God. Now what is the affirmation or the proof that these two essential facts are the reality? Notice Paul said Christ died for us according to the scriptures and then what happened? He was buried and Christ rose on the third day according to the scriptures, and then what happened? And he appeared. And in his appearances, first to Peter, then to many others, even 500 at one time, is the fact that it was an affirmation that this isn't just a vision somebody's having. This isn't just a ghost who is manifesting himself in the presence of the apostles or his followers. Remember how he even clarified the fact that he was much more than just a spirit that was now visible in the presence of his disciples? First thing he said was, Do you have anything to eat? And he partook of the food that was there. What did he say to Thomas? Put your finger into the holes in my hand, place your hand into the wound. That's in my side. A spirit does not have flesh and bone as you see is true of me. The appearances of Jesus Christ in bodily form were a confirmation of the reality of his resurrection. Now what is the theological significance of these events that Paul might describe in more detail in other places? Well, it's the recognition when we think about his death. It's the one who knew no sin. And he became sin for us. For what purpose? That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And the reality of his resurrection was God's confirmation it is finished. Te telestai. He has accomplished justification. And therefore, God's people can sing, there is no condemnation, now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God confirms that what Christ set out to do He has fulfilled, he has accomplished. And his cry on the cross, it is finished, was a cry of triumph. He had overcome sin and satisfied the wrath of God. If you go with me to the book of Galatians, in Galatians chapter one, Even in apostolic days, there was a concern that Paul had for people to whom he administered. Verse 6, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. And in the Greek text, there's a play on two little words. Word that could be translated different or another means one of the same kind, and the other word means it's totally distinct, it's not even of the same essence, and that's the word here. He says, You, I'm concerned about you. Why? You're deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ for something of an altogether different makeup a different gospel, which is really not another. It's not one of the same. It's something totally different. They were embracing it. And there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even though we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which you had preached to you, let him be. Accursed. Those who tamper with God's message are under the sentence of divine judgment. And those who embrace a false gospel are individuals, as he says later in this book, are severed from Christ. Now, I want to pause for just a moment to encourage your heart in one fashion You and I all know the fact that we're still growing in our understanding of truth. That doesn't mean that if we don't have a complete, full full understanding of truth, which is a lifelong pursuit, we're somehow separated from God. Nothing could be farther from the truth. If I'm a child of God, how do I start? As a newborn babe in Christ. (coughs) And I grow and mature into childhood, you know, adolescence, young adulthood, and eventually old age. But it's a growing process, and my understanding keeps increasing. I also need to recognize that even though people have imperfectly presented the gospel of Christ, there still is the reality that God has been pleased to save individuals apart from the fact that the true gospel or the pure gospel was presented. God is calling his own to himself. But the other thing I need to recognize, even though God may be using these inappropriate methods or messages, does not give me the right to promote those erroneous methods or messages. We have been given a commission from God. And if I am not faithfully delivering the message that he has has given to me, then I am an instrument that is confusing the issue so that when I say to people, as you have received Christ, now walk in him. Well, I may think that there is something I need to do because that's how I received Christ. I may think that there are methods that need to be employed, that I may now mature in Christ. Instead of recognizing if anyone is in Christ, what is he or she? A new creation. If I am a Christian, I am not what I used to be. And the glory is I am still not yet of what I will be. But the spirit of God never leaves me alone. He is at work within me changing me from one level of glory into another. And that's the beauty of this gospel message. When the apostle Paul wrote to the Galatians, he said to them, rejoicing over their walk. Since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth, that is the gospel which has come to you just as in all the world. Also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing even as it has been doing in you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. We don't believe that today. Well, someone can be really a Christian, but you never see anything in their lives. Maybe we're on the wrong path. Maybe we're not delivering the message that God's given us to deliver. Maybe we've lost sight of the fact that it's, Not by strength nor by might, but how? By God's Spirit. Maybe we've thought that if we just drum up the right type of environment, somehow people will be motivated to give their lives to Christ. Do it at a funeral, do it in a mortuary. See how many corpses respond to the music that's being played. Where are we outside of Christ? Dead in our trespasses and sins. What makes us alive? Not the oratory skill of the presenter. Not the music that's being used to somehow try to make us feel good come to recognize we think of music as something to benefit and inspire us instead of recognizing it's given to us as a way in which we express our love and devotion to God. Why? Because we are self-centered in an American church. We're living for our own gratification. We're on the wrong path and we don't know how to get off. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He said in verse 3, I am afraid that just as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your mind should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different, something of a totally distinct essence, a different gospel which you have not accepted. You bear it beautifully. There's this concern. They're willingly going down this wrong path. And how do you get them back on the right one? And what does he say was part of the problem here? That just as the serpent deceived Eve. So, what did the serpent do? He made Eve think about herself, he made her think about her needs. He called into question the goodness of God. God's keeping back something from you. He knows that the day you eat, you won't die. And then he denied the word of God. And since that time, man has embraced the word of the creature instead of the word of the Creator. And what we can do is we can manufacture a Jesus that is according to our liking, that we can present a gospel that somehow still lets people feel good about themselves we can make our emphasis on felt need rather than the essence of the issue. Your problem is not that you're lonely. Your problem is not that you're despondent or discouraged. Your problem is you're an alien from divine justice. You are hostile to God and dead in your sin. And praise be uh, to God that Christ came into the world to save sinners. He deals with the real cause of the issue, not just the symptoms that are there. And when I deal with the cause of the issue, many of the symptoms go away. Satan is an adversary, like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And what he wants to do is catch you at the trailhead. Here's the options. And begin to follow and pursue the path that is the wrong way. And sadly, far too often individuals wake up after it is too late. I think the essence of what the evil one is doing is reflected in What Paul stated when he wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 16. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. God was revealed in the flesh. He was vindicated in the spirit, beheld by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory but the spirit expressly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith paying attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrine of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which god has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth Notice verse 1 of chapter 4 begins with a contrastive statement, but. So in other words, this doctrine of demons, these deceitful spirits, have a two-pronged emphasis. In some way, they diminish the person and the work of Christ, which was the common confession. Whether it was an early creed in the apostolic days or what some think is the uh, remnant of an early hymn that the church would sing. In either case, it was focused on the person and the work of Christ. But, so the doctrine of demons is going to, in one way or another, present a worthless savior. Yeah, you need to trust Jesus, but you need something more. And what they really facilitate and promote is things you need to do, works. I can become more spiritual if I'm a celibate. I can become more spiritual if I abstain from certain foods which God has freely given us to enjoy. World religions are always based on the fact that Jesus Christ is not sufficient. He's worthless as far as making you acceptable to God. Something more is needed and what's promoted are works to make one acceptable to God. There's the essence of all world religions. And there's the essence of the perversion of the gospel of grace. Whether it's at the trailhead or at the beginning or as we continue to mature in Christ where we begin to think that it's something that I do to make me more, whatever it may be, instead of recognizing it's grace and grace alone and a dependent trust in my all-sufficient Savior, Jesus Christ. Go with me over to Romans chapter 1. Paul said in verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written. But the righteous man shall live by faith the gospel, the good news. What does he say of it? It's the power of God. It's the dunamis, the dynamic, if I use the English term. It's that which is filled with energy. And the reality is it accomplishes what nothing else can do. People are not brought into the kingdom because they agree with my theology. People are not brought into the kingdom because of how I can explain biblical truth. People are not brought into the kingdom because of the methods that I employ to try to present the gospel to them. They are brought into the kingdom because the gospel is the power of God... For salvation or literally into deliverance, into salvation. What will set us free? What does God utilize to take one who is dead and make them alive? Not my abilities. And this is the liberating reality. What he utilizes is the simplicity of the gospel of the grace of God which to some individuals is utter foolishness. The natural man doesn't find it that it tantalizes his intellectual desires. But Paul, when he wrote to the Corinthians, said, when I came and was before you, I determined to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Because he was aware of the fact that God uses the gospel to take people who are dead in sin and to make them alive. He is the one who woos and draws individuals to himself through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation. When the writer of Hebrews spoke about the ability of God's word, what did he say? The word of God is living, it's powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and the joints and marrow. It's the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The word of God has more power to it than any persuasive philosophical argument. And as Christian people, we need to utilize God's word in our day to bring the gospel to individuals. James Boyce, in his work, Whatever Happened to the Gospel of Grace, stated the following. I do not think the inerrancy of the Bible is the most important scripture issue facing the church as we move into the early years of the third millennium. The issue I would pinpoint today is the sufficiency of God's word. Meaning, do we really believe that in this book, God has given us what we need to do all necessary spiritual work? Or do we have to supplement the Bible with man-made techniques or devices? Consider these questions. In evangelism, do we need sociological techniques to do evangelism? Must we attract people to our churches by showmanship and entertainment? For sanctification, do we need psychology and psychiatry for Christian growth? Are encounter groups really essential? Do we really believe in the sufficiency of scripture? Paul did. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the dynamic of God into deliverance for salvation. First to the Jew, because they had the Old Testament scriptures as well. And Christ, the confirmation of it. But thanks be to God that he also uses that same gospel message to bring Gentiles to himself. And what's it through? Through faith. A faith that is supernatural as God discloses himself to his people. For in it is the reality of transformation. In it. Notice what he emphasizes, verse 17. The righteousness of God is revealed. Why didn't Paul say, in it the love of God is revealed? We know that it is. How is it that God loved the world? You're familiar with that passage. Here is how God loved the world. He gave his only begotten son. For what reason? So that the one who is believing would not perish, but have everlasting life. Why is it that when I look at the evangelistic preaching of Paul and Peter, Stephen, and others in the book of Acts, which are the framework for how you and I should be doing it today, they never talk about the love of God. Do you understand the love of God is not just something universally given to the same degree to all individuals? Do you understand that there is the fact that God has a concern for all of his creation and we can talk about that in the way of love? But the reality is God has a special love for his people. And that is not the love that was used as a presentation of a gospel message. What does Paul say here ought to be the crux? of what is emphasized in the gospel of the grace of God, which is the power of God to salvation. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed. So the problem is I've offended the creator. The problem is I don't measure up because my calling in life is what? Let's make man in our image and according to our likeness. It is to reflect the glory of God. But the problem is, in my corrupted state, I fall short of my calling and my purpose and no longer reflect his glory. And God never lowers his standard. And the beauty of the gospel is that without lowering his standard, Jesus Christ satisfies it. And for the child of God, It is no longer that I have a righteousness of my own that is manufactured by things that I try to do to be acceptable to God. But as he told the Philippians, I want to be found in him and not have a righteousness of my own as derived from the law, but the righteousness that comes from God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. See, as a child of God, I'm not just forgiven. As a child of God, I'm righteous in my father's sight. As a child of God, all the demands of divine justice have been satisfied and therefore, for me, there is no condemnation in Jesus Christ, my Lord. And for everyone who puts their confident faith and trust in Jesus Christ, there is complete and eternal acceptance with God because Jesus paid it all. It's all to him I owe. And while sin had made me Unacceptable to God, he washed me white as snow. And it the righteousness of God is revealed. Read Romans 3. It was a display of God's righteous standard when he poured out his wrath on Jesus Christ. And it was done in a way that demonstrates only through him is anyone acceptable to God. So, when Peter was asked the question, he made it very clear to the Jewish nation the one whom you crucified, God has raised up. He has made him the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation where? In no one else but him. For there is no other name given among heaven whereby you must be saved. And Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And what he was really emphasizing is, you know where my confidence is? You know what I'm going to rely upon? You know what I'm going to depend upon? The simplicity of the message that God's given to me. And so when the Philippian jailer said to him, sir, what must I do to be saved? Remember Paul's answer? Trust, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved just the simple reality, if your faith is in yourself or in anything else other than Jesus Christ, you're unacceptable to God. But if you are depending upon Jesus Christ, the one who came and died for the sins of others so that everyone who puts his or her faith in him will never perish. Then you are accepted as a child of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm gonna leave it there. What path are you on? What path is the church on? See, we have great programs We're utilizing methods of evangelism that go back, probably tracing their real origin to Charles Finney, the 1800s. And we're very comfortable with those methods. We've come up with methods of how to evangelize. And somehow we say, look at the great results the church is making, but the reality is, look at the deterioration of our society. Where are all of those who the polls say profess to be born-again Christians and what kind of a difference is being made. And part of it is because of the methods that we have employed, we really don't expect to see any difference in someone that now says they're a Christian, where the reality is if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away And God is at work and all things are becoming new. And what we need more than anything else today is a revival of those simple biblical truths with a prayer that God would be pleased to use his word to bring life to undeserving sinners just as he graciously did for any one of us who can say, I have the right to be called a child of God. Because I was born not by the will of man nor the will of the flesh, but I was born by the will of God. The boy said the following in that same work, Whatever Happened to the Gospel of Grace. We are startled by the disregard for human life that has overtaken large segments of the United States. But what do we expect to see when a country as proudly secular as ours openly turns its back on God? We deplore the moral breakdown of standards in the church even among its most visible leaders. But what do we think should happen when we have focused on ourselves and our own often trivial needs rather than on God, ignoring his holiness and excusing our most blatant sins? To listen to many contemporary sermons, one would think that man's chief end is to glorify himself and to cruise the malls. In a work that is not Christian, done at the end of the last century by a man named Neil Postman, concerned about our American culture, calling it amusing ourselves to death, said the following when he spoke about religion, in America, and especially the things that are happening with television and in so many groups today where they have the video display of the sermon given somewhere else, and they gather. We've lost the essence of what the church is really supposed to be, and Postman said, everything that makes religion a historic, profound and sacred human activity is stripped away. There is no ritual, no dogma, no tradition, no theology, and above all, no sense of spiritual transcendence. Now, how often do we get together to worship and we really anticipate being transformed into the presence of God and seeing and hearing of his majestic holiness. Since that is so absent in the church, we have had to substitute a lot of entertainment to try to pump people up so they can go away feeling good. But the reality is that's the wrong path. And if that's the path I'm on and I'm not even aware of it, then I am one to be greatly pitied. But for all of us, it's time to get back to the simplicity. He says, on these shows, the preacher is tops. God comes out as second banana. If I'm not mistaken, there's a word for that. It's called blasphemy. Worship is never designed to promote any human being. The gospel is not designed so that people are impressed with me. It is designed so that individuals who are dead in sin know the joy and the beauty of sins forgiven in a relationship with God. And it is designed so that God is the one that receives all the glory. And where, like Paul, I can say, well, I might plant. Someone else might water Another individual might have the joy of reaping. But who's the one who plants or reaps? Who's the one who waters? He says, they're nothing. That God might receive all the glory. May we get back to the right path. May we recognize just that simple little gospel that is foolishness to the natural man and a stumbling block to the Jew. But it's the reality that Christ came into the world as the God-man for the specific purpose of giving himself as a sacrifice on behalf of others, not for any sins that he had done, but to bear the sins of others. And he was confirmed as completing that work by being raised from the dead with a full understanding that everyone who puts his or her confident, dependent trust in Christ alone, Will never perish, will never experience the wrath of God. It is the gospel of undeserved, uncaused favor that thou, my God, would die for me. Let's pray. Father, I thank you again for your truth. How I pray. Father, that you'd encourage our hearts to know that our ministry has nothing to do with our capabilities, but we have the treasure in an earthen vessel, that the excellency of the power might be of God and not of man. Help us to understand that our purpose is not to coerce individuals, to impress individuals, to try to find a way to make the church more desirable a natural man but ours is to honor and glorify you to grow in Christ likeness to worship your great and holy name and as we speak to others of the great joy it is to be a child of God it is all through Jesus Christ our Lord To whom we owe all things. May he be the one that receives the glory.